Did you know? Halloween edition. That modern vampires should be able to see their reflections in modern mirrors. Mirrors of old had a layer of silver under the glass to provide a reflective surface. And vampires were supposedly allergic to silver and therefore couldn't see themselves in mirrors. Today's mirrors no longer use silver, so vampires should be able to see themselves in modern mirrors. Welcome to the Lore of the South. Follow the show on social media to keep up with what's going on and to see pics that go along with each episode. Search for Lore of the South on TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Welcome back to Lore of the South with me, Kelly Cruz. And y'all, it is the spookiest time of the year. And how the heck are y'all doing? Y'all, I have had so much energy lately and zero focus. It's like someone gave a two-year-old a Hershey bar. Anyway, so I've made list after list as to what kind of spooky episodes to do, and I can't find the list. (laughs) So we're winging it. And I think maybe we should go straight into digging up some history-making news. This story comes from Live Science. A Bronze Age girl was found buried with about 150 animal ankle bones and quite a few grave goods with her, like a carving of a small frog on a bronze disc. She was buried on her left side, knees drawn towards her chest. They think that she was probably between the ages of 13 and 15. The young girl was found to be wearing a beaded necklace around her neck and there were wire earrings where her ears had once been. There are approximately a hundred more burial mounds in the location where she was uncovered in Kazakhstan. This first Halloween installment takes place right here in the South. I thought we'd be doing some field trip episodes, but found some local fare for us. Have y'all ever heard about Southern Witch Trials? Well, I hadn't until I started researching today's podcast. So let's see where this one takes us. We all know about Salem. And many of us know about the Pendle Witches in Northern England. But the Southern Witch Trials, well, it's kind of fresh ground to cover. At least it is for me. So let's start where the English colonies began in Jamestown. I mentioned Salem because how can you not when talking about witch trials, especially in North America, but you're going to see the difference between how Puritans reacted to a situation compared to how the Church of England reacted, or maybe it was the difference between a religious ruled community and a business ruled community, and Jamestown and Virginia were founded by the Virginia Company. So, you know, they were more about a profit than saving a soul, maybe? I don't know. Let's find out. When the English first landed in the New World in the spring of 1607, they were greeted by natives who didn't look like them, did not share the same values or beliefs, and the natives lived in harmony with the unconquered world. 
where the English felt like it was the will of God to reshape and form the land into what they wanted it to be. And what they wanted it to be was to be profitable. They found the Paladin Indians to be wild and thought them to be at the least devil worshippers, if not devils themselves. They equated the Native American priests to English witches. This was said by the First Expedition's minister, Alexander Whitaker. Then we also have quotes from the likes of John Smith and George Percy. John Smith, Chief Powhatan, who was Pocahontas' dad, seemed more devil than man. And then George Percy's words only added to this. The natives sounded more like wolves and devils than of men. So we can see there was already a great discrimination occurring. Colonists also believe that one's outward appearance was a reflection of one's soul. So the darker your skin, the darker your soul. How's that for a perspective, y'all? Look at it the past through the eyes of someone in the present. Researchers have found about two dozen accusations of witchcraft brought before the courts in the early and mid-1600s, most of which ended in defamation and slander cases, which meant the accused witch turned the suing around and countersued their accuser. Just like in most witch trials, there was either a natural occurrence happened that they couldn't explain, so they'd blame the oldest widow in the village to get rid of her. Many times it had to do with a property dispute. Sometimes a greedy neighbor might want your land, so he and a couple of witnesses would come together and accuse the neighbor of witchcraft. If the accused admitted or was convicted of witchcraft, all their property would be forfeit. So, there were benefits of calling your neighbor a witch. But Virginia catches on to this early and passes an anti-witch law in May of 1655. But what the law really did was penalize anyone found to be making false accusations. Here's a quote, and y'all bear with me because it's written in a time before there were dictionaries. Those delivering dangerous and scandalous speeches raised by some persons concerning several women in this county, timing them to be witches, whereby their reputations have been much impaired and their lives brought into question. If you were found guilty of bringing forward a false case, you would owe a fine of a thousand pounds of tobacco. And y'all, I kind of found this kind of humorous because if you remember back to the Tobacco Bride and Casket Girl episode, the bride price in Jamestown was 200 pounds of tobacco. A thousand pounds of tobacco for false witness and 200 pounds to get you a wife. So you better be dang sure you had a good case against your neighbor witch. And Virginia was doing this nearly 40 years before the Salem trials began. Virginia did base its own trial rules after the English anti-witchcraft law of 1604. But from what I have found, Virginia was more about staunching these cases than pursuing them. 
In other words, they were trying to cut out the gossipers and the people who were just slandering people or maybe... Maybe their cow got in your garden and ate your vegetables, so now you're going to call them a witch because you don't have any vegetables anymore. They were trying to put a stop to this sort of thing. And y'all, like I said to my friend while researching this, in the South, we have a long history of minding our business, or at least pretending to. And it seems like the courts of the 17th century Virginia felt the same way, Virginia did not allow for any supernatural accusations to be heard. And that means, like, you can't say somebody came to you in a dream and said they were going to hurt you, and that's proof that they're a witch. You can't say you saw them throw chicken scratch into a pattern, and it had to be physical evidence. So they would check the people over for physical proof, like witches' marks or... I don't know what would be worse, having to be checked for witch's marks or having to do trial by water. Once humiliating, one might kill you. It was up to the accuser to prove the guilt of the accused witch, innocent until proven guilty, y'all. One of the first cases was against Joan Wright, a married midwife who served in what is now Surrey County. Her neighbors accused her of killing a newborn crops and livestock, and even predicting the deaths of some of her fellow colonists. She admitted to knowing of witchcraft practices. She was probably, in all reality, an herbalist and a wise woman who can recognize illness in her fellow community members, therefore be able to see the signs of how close to death some of them might have been. And as far as the dead newborn went, infant mortality was more than 50%. But, here's the kicker, y'all. In spite of her admission, Joan was found not guilty. The article I read about these colonial Virginia witchcraft cases claims that the next one is their most famous. As always, you can find my sources in the show notes if you'd like to read the article for yourself. And the locals of Princess Anne County were after this woman for nearly two decades. So y'all, let's meet Grace Sherwood, the Witch of Pungo. It's thought that Grace was probably born in Pungo, part of modern-day Virginia Beach, in 1660, to John and Susan White. Her father was a carpenter and a farmer. He owned a fair-sized land portion, nearly 200 acres. And when his daughter Grace married James Sherwood in April of 1680, he gifted the couple a 50-acre parcel. Only a year later, Grace's father would pass away, and his only child would inherit a further 145 acres. In this area, it was mostly made up of small landowners and those who worked for the landowners. Grace and James would have three sons, all who lived to adulthood, John, James, and Richard. The family was poor, and Grace would work as a midwife and had a good knowledge of herbs and their healing properties. With this knowledge, she served both the humans and animals of her community. Her husband James passed away in 1701, and Grace never remarried, meaning by Virginia law that those lands were hers until she herself passed. 
Grace was described as a tall and attractive woman with a quick wit and a grand sense of humor. And y'all know that means trouble. She was also known to wear men's clothing while doing her farm chores or working in her herb patch. Y'all, the witchiness just keeps adding up quick here. Grace's name was found to be mentioned in at least a dozen lawsuits, whether it was she being accused as a witch or her countersuing for slander. The accusations began in 1698 and continued until 1706. So let's go through the list of what the good-humored, pants-wearing herb gardener was accused of. Bewitching pigs, bewitching of crops, bewitching a bull to death, shape-shifting into a black cat, and spiritually flogging of a female neighbor, turning into a cat and then into smoke and escaping through a keyhole. By 1706, I think the courts were tired of seeing Grace before them, or maybe it was the fact that she had once again been accused of bewitching a neighbor and this time causing a miscarriage. Well, Grace didn't show up for her January court date. A month later, she was ordered into court and two separate juries were called up, both made up of ancient and knowing women. One group was sent to search her home for human effigies made from either wax or perhaps even baked goods. These would have been tokens that she'd used to curse her neighbors. The other group of 12 women, which was headed up by a woman called Elizabeth Barnes, had actually been one of Grace's previous accusers. And it was her leading the rest of the pack to search Grace Sherwood's body for the devil's mark. Barnes then reports the findings of two marks upon Grace, unlike of those on any other woman. Even with all of this against Grace, neither her home county of Princess Anne or the capital of Williamsburg wanted to out and out declare Grace a witch. A special court was appointed to hear out the case. They found that there was no firm proof of sorcery, but Grace was surely under suspicion. Seven months from the start of the trial, on July 5th, 1706, it was then decided to give her the old trial by water or ducking. The thought behind this was that the water was pure, you know, except for all the sewage and trash that colonials dumped into it. So if you're pure, the water would accept you and you would sink. But if you are a witch, the purity of the water would reject you and you would float. And y'all, I just have to interject with my own Jeopardy brain, whatever sense of humor I have. All I can think about at this point is the Monty Python scene from the Holy Grail. And I'm not a witch. It's a false nose. You know, that's all I can think of when I'm reading about this stuff. On July 10th, Grace was told to pray and ask for forgiveness for being in league with the devil. Her response was, I be not a witch, I be a healer. And with that, they loaded Grace into the back of a wagon and carried her down a dirt path. And y'all, that road still exists today, and it's called Witch Duck Road. Coincidence? I don't think so. So they took her to a plantation at the mouth of the Lynnhaven River where she was stripped naked and examined once again 
before they bound her left thumb to her right toe and her right thumb to her left toe. She was then put into a sack. And all of this was witnessed by hundreds of colonists that had come from all over Virginia to watch. Six justices then rode Grace out into the middle of the river to test her. Before heaving her overboard, Grace was heard to shout under perfectly clear skies, Before this day is through, you will receive a worse ducking than I. And with that, they chunked her over the side of the boat. Grace promptly floated back up to the water's surface. Then, the justices tied a 13-pound Bible around her neck. This time, Grace sank. But, clever Grace was able to free herself and swim to the surface. And y'all, just as the men on the boat were pulling her from the water, the skies opened up and a god-awful downpour started. Oh, Grace. Once on shore, she was examined again. So this is like a third time. This time, the examiners claimed to have found two teat-like things on her lady bits. And she was once again, for the fourth time that day, declared a witch. She was then jailed, pending future trials. It's unknown if she was ever tried again, but we do know that she was finally released in or before 1714 because there are records that show she paid back taxes owed on her property. Why her sons weren't paying the taxes, I have no idea. But she lived there on her land on the banks of Muddy Creek until 1740 when she passed away at the age of 80. And the fact that she lived till 80 is kind of witchy, y'all. Because most people were dead by like 46, if not earlier, especially being a woman that had three living sons. No wonder they thought she was a witch. None of her kids died and she was old, y'all. So then, according to legend, when Grace passed, her sons laid her out by the fireplace. Doesn't sound like the smartest place to put a dead body, but you know, whatever. These were three dudes. When suddenly a wild gust of wind came down the chimney, and when it went back up again, it took Grace with it. Some say all that was left behind was the print of one cloven hoof in the ash. And that was the legend of Grace Sherwood. Now for the truth of what really happened to her body. So, truth be told, she was laid to rest in an unmarked grave under some trees near the modern intersections of Pungo Ferry and Princess Anne Roads. Now, right after her death, the townspeople reported a huge influx of black cats, which led the men of the town to exterminate nearly every cat in the area. And then that led to a huge mouse and rat problem. I'm sure a rat and mouse infestation was not good for their crops or their health. The area is also known for wild and windy storms, but it is a coastal area, so it could be coincidence. Or is it the spirit of Grace Sherwood using that shining wood of hers in the afterlife? Side notes. All right, y'all. 
Grace's home stood for about 200 years until vandals finally succeeded in burning her old home to the ground. For years, you could still see the two chimneys standing. Then those were bulldozed in 2002. What was once Grace Sherwood's 195 acres is now part of the Back Bay National Wildlife Refuge. And I do have a couple more notes here. Y'all, I didn't know George Percy was one of the founders of Jamestown. He was practically a royal. His father was the Earl of Northumberland. Y'all Google Annick Castle. And I'm going to spell Annick for you because it is not spelled the same way we pronounce it. Or they pronounce it in England. Um, it is spelled A-L-N-W-I-C-K. And it's pronounced Annick. So y'all look that up. That would have been um, George Percy's family seat. One of his brothers was in on the gunpowder plot and is a very interesting family, the Percy's. And one last note, I think I've said this before, but many times those who were accused of witchcraft were people that were either different, maybe they stood out, maybe they had something that their neighbors coveted. More times than not, if something went wrong, people wanted a scapegoat and a lot of those times, it would be maybe one of the poorest in the community. Maybe it was a feeble old woman who counted on her neighbors for charity. A good way to get rid of her was to call her a witch. Problem solved. Now onto the oldest buildings by state. And we're at North Dakota. And it is the home of several trading posts, but the two oldest date from 1843. They were built by Antoine Gingras and are located in the Walhalla area. Whew, these names. Then up next is Ohio, and Ohio's oldest building is the Old Stone Fort. It dates from 1769 and was built for defense. Super thick stone walls, and the only windows are like gun slits for rifles or muskets. I guess they would have been muskets back then, right? Well, thank y'all for joining us for this special October edition of Lore of the South. I got into this one, and I even found a few more Southern witch trials that I think I'm going to save for later. What else do I need to share? Oh, we got a new review. Five stars from Movie Girl. She says, great show. I love listening, and the host has a great voice. Well, thank you for that. It's very much appreciated especially after I found this older one, <laughs> this older review. Um, and let's see, what was this username? Um, the Duchess of Wilshire. I don't think she's probably a duchess, but if she is, I'm sorry, your highness, for disappointing you. Um, she titled um, her review, A Southern Boar. Um, apparently I talked too much and I must have misspoken or mispronounced the word veteran and said veterinarian at some point in an episode though um, the Duchess didn't name the episode because y'all that was a fixable mistake we can go back and edit that producer Mike does wonders with fixing my mistakes and it's weird that I didn't catch that because I don't want to offend anyone especially veterans Let's see, what else did the Duchess say about me in our podcast? Oh, they were looking forward to some good storytelling. Well, sorry to disappoint. You didn't find my storytelling good. 
But I do hope that you find a podcast that suits your ears, Duchess. Hey, y'all, if y'all have a spare second, why don't y'all leave us a review on Apple Podcasts so we can counteract that bad review that we just got. Five stars and a few kind words goes a long way to supporting the podcast. Thanks, y'all. Also, I heard from longtime listener Citrus Sunshine. One day, I'm going to learn your real name. (laughs) And she gave me permission to share her story relating to the home of the great-great-grandparents of old Alligator Joe. But I think I'm going to save that for the Patreon for producer and Mike and I to talk about. Thank y'all for joining us for another episode of Laura of the South. Please follow us on social media, um, Facebook, Instagram. Producer Mike puts out TikToks. And if you are a YouTuber, we have just the audio upload of each episode onto YouTube. You can, even if you don't listen there, it would be awesome if you would subscribe. I think we only have like three subscribers. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email the show at lauraofthesouth at gmail.com. If you have any show ideas, we'd love to hear from you. Also, we have a Patreon. Uh, Producer Mike and I sit down twice a month at least to discuss previous episodes that we've released. And then you get one extra full bonus episode as well. And Producer Mike usually joins me for that too. We like to cut up on those Patreons and they're, they're a lot looser. I try to keep these a little bit more formal. And I think that covers it, y'all. Because I lost my notes because the computer died. And with that, we'll talk to y'all later on Lore of the South. Bye, y'all. Stay tuned for a preview of our latest Patreon episode. Now, that was another thing about this is when you go back to episode 22 and you start talking about how the amount of people died in this was 12,000 people, I think, originally died in the storm. Yeah, they can... and like you compare that to the storm that we just had, and less than 10 people have perished in that storm. Right. But the information that they did not get, simply for reasons that I just don't like that type of person. Yeah. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna heed the warning. Yeah, there was a huge anti-Catholic sentiment. I mean, and you know, and that lasted up through the 60s. There were people who didn't want to vote for JFK because he was Catholic. Oh, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, like, you know, that kind of stuff has always been around. And good information is good information. You pretending that it's not doesn't make a difference. And, well, in this case, it was deadly. It killed up to 12,000 people. Oh, yeah. And it's still the deadliest disaster in U.S. history. I mean, like, Katrina didn't even beat this. No, but there was still still warning. Even though there wasn't enough, like... They didn't get the people out fast enough. Right. Even though there wasn't there wasn't enough effort to get people moved and whatever, you know, the politics was behind that, but still just the fact that people had the information, knowing this thing was coming, knowing it was as big as it was, knowing that it could Yeah, you live in a soup bowl of Louis in of New Orleans. Yeah. Which is just one of the worst. I mean, if you talk about a perfect storm, that that really was but um, what I was going to get back, to, what I was going to get back to about the other thing is, is it's crazy how in that in that situation they didn't want to listen to these people because they were Catholics or whatever, and, and and how throughout history, even up to today, we pick sides. If you loved what you heard, check out the Patreon page for exclusive content. 
by searching for The Lore of the South on Patreon.com. 